0: Oh,
1: okay.
0: oh. You are listening listening to Hold That Thought from Arts
1: and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Gowan. Today on the
0: show, we welcome Kedron Thomas. My name is Kedrin Thomas and I am an assistant professor of Anthropology here at WashU. Thomas'
1: latest book begins with a bustling scene in an indigenous Maya community in highland Guatemala, in a central plaza overlooked by a colonial-era Catholic church. Every night after sunset, vendors emerge to sell tacos, tamales, and hot drinks. Kids run around playing soccer, and dozens of young men walk around the plaza or hang out by the central fountain, wanting to see and be seen. Like teenagers and young adults everywhere, these men are very particular about their style. The typical uniform is an oversized hoodie with faded blue jeans, usually
0: wide-legged, that fall over a pair of very shiny, meticulously kept black leather shoes. This is a really common look, and it's topped off with thickly gelled hair um, that you get a glimpse of from underneath this um, oversized hood that young men sort of pull up over there heads.
1: The gelled hair and shiny shoes complete the look. But for the purposes of her book, Thomas was most interested in these young men's clothing. Specifically, the words scrawled across those jeans and oversized hoodies. Words
0: like Abercrombie & Fitch or Hollister. Some of the most popular brand names when I was doing this field work were Abercrombie & Fitch, Echo, Hollister. Diesel jeans, Levi's jeans.
1: But here's the thing. None of these outfits were actually purchased from Levi's, Abercrombie & Fitch, or Hollister. They're knockoffs. Fakes. And everybody knows it. According to intellectual property law, basically the entire fashion landscape happening in this plaza is illegal. In her work as an anthropologist, Thomas studies things like entrepreneurship, the local effects of global trade policy, and international law. She wanted to know the story behind all this knockoff
0: clothing. So I wanted to understand what is the perspective of people in Guatemala about brands, about what they mean, about who owns them, and about the rights that they might feel like they have to be able to use those brands in the ways that they see fit.
1: Those young men in the square, what did they think about the brand names written on their clothes? What about the people who make the hoodies? Do they understand that they're breaking the law? Do they care? Who benefits from all these knockoffs? And who, if anyone, is harmed? To really dig into all these questions, Thomas knew she had to do more than hand out a few surveys. She did the fieldwork for this project between 2006 and 2012, including a whole year in Guatemala
0: in 2009. You know, as a cultural anthropologist, one of the things that we really try to get at is the feel of everyday life. So not just what do people say about their lives or how do they describe their lives when asked, but what does it really feel like to be there and to be part of what people are experiencing on a daily basis? So she started at the beginning, the point of creation.
1: She found a local clothing workshop and volunteered to work there. For eight hours a day, Thomas sat at an industrial sewing machine, seeing and feeling what it's actually like to be part of the industry. Most of her coworkers were young guys, 16 or 17 years old. The conditions were not exactly like sitting in an office here at WashU.
0: We were under a sort of tin roof on the second floor of a building, and you could feel the sun sort of beating down through the tin roof. And we would open the windows to try to get some air movement. But then you had the dusty streets, and cars going by would turn up the dust, and that would come in through the windows. And so that made everything a little bit uncomfortable.
1: The young guys did not mind the dust. They wanted to keep the windows open so they could sometimes lean out and look at the pretty girls go by. The whole scene seems pretty harmless. But remember, to multinational corporations, these men were pirates engaged in criminal activity stealing brand names and logos. As Thomas found, these men saw themselves and their work quite
0: differently. They see themselves as producing a product that's important for a local market, and they see themselves as creative. They see themselves as participating in the production of fashion, of style, of taking these symbols that they see on television and that they see in malls and that they see in catalogs, that they see online, and putting them to use in a way that makes sense for a local population of fashion consumers and at prices that people can afford. That last point
1: is important. In the parts of Guatemala where Thomas was doing her field work, nobody was going to buy a shirt from Abercrombie and Fitch for $30, $40, $50 a decent wage was six or seven dollars a day. So wearing these fashions was not about displaying some sort of wealth or financial status. Remember, everyone knows their knockoffs. Instead, Thomas found that in this
0: context,
1: brand names had a different kind of value.
0: It certainly is about showing that you know about fashion and that you know about what's popular and that you know about what is stylish and what is cosmopolitan. So it's very much about exhibiting taste.
1: Anywhere you go, whether in Guatemala or on a U.S. college campus, people show their knowledge of style in a bunch of ways. Things like cut, color, pattern. Not wearing flared jeans when everyone else is wearing skinny jeans. That sort of thing. Thomas found that in Guatemala, visual brand names are seen as an important part
0: of this sort of messaging. Brands, clothing brands, fashion brands, are not just the mark of a multinational company. They're design elements in the clothing that we wear and in the accessories that we wear. So if you think of a Louis Vuitton bag, for instance, a Louis Vuitton bag is a bag that is stamped all over the leather with the Louis Vuitton trademark and that trademark is not just a sign of corporate ownership it's also a really important design element and that's what I understood from the people who were creating fashion manufacturing clothing for a local market in Guatemala was that they saw the brand name as part of the design and as part of what makes clothing fashionable in today's global fashion scene.
1: So where do trademarks and intellectual property rights come in? From what we've heard so far, you might be thinking that for these business owners in Guatemala, these kind of laws just get tossed out the window because customers will pay for knockoffs, it just does not pay to play by the rules. But Thomas found that that's
0: not the whole story. There's A pretty clear set of rules that people follow about what you can copy and what you can share with other people but it doesn't match up with intellectual property law the way that it's been implemented by the Guatemalan government or in international organizations like the World Trade Organization so I mentioned that creativity is important and people see it as very important that whether you're borrowing a design from a multinational corporation like Abercrombie and Fitch or whether you're borrowing a design from a neighbor down the street that you change something it's very important that you make some kind of change and make it your own if you're borrowing from your neighbor the other thing that's very important is that you do not undercut them in terms of their pricing so if you sell the same garment the same design for a lower price than your neighbor is selling it for, that is really looked down upon within this economic and social community. And people call each other copycats if they do that. Copycats.
1: The word does have meaning here. It just means something different than what you might think, given the fact that we're talking about the knockoff fashion industry. In this context, being a copycat means that you're not being creative not moving fashion forward. It means that you're hurting your neighbor. It's a moral norm that helps business thrive in this particular place, which given Guatemala's history may make more sense than blindly following national or
0: international laws. There wasn't a day that went by during my field work that I didn't have a conversation with someone about their experience of the violence at the hands of the state or the guerrilla army um, during the internal armed conflict. Um, This lasted 36 years in Guatemala. The peace accords were signed in 1996. And that legacy of violence, that legacy of fear and suspicion about the state, about the military, about the police force, And therefore, about the law and authority of the state. That is present every day uh, in
1: Guatemala. Here in the United States, it can be easy to sit back and just say, laws are important, follow the law. But Thomas found that for many people in Guatemala, when it comes to things like government, the police
0: and the law, things just aren't that straightforward. It's one thing to say, You need to follow the laws of your country. (laughs) But when you feel like your country is fundamentally against you, and when you feel like so much of the history of the nation in which you reside is about seeking your extermination, to put it very bluntly, you're less apt (laughs) to take seriously those kinds of legal demands that are placed on you.
1: With this in mind, it's understandable that people in Guatemala might be a little skeptical of certain laws. And when it comes to trademark law around the globe, Thomas believes that that skepticism might actually be valid.
0: So one of the things that I thought about a lot during this project was, why do multinational corporations like Gap or Levi's or Abercrombie and Fitch Why do they pursue trademark infringement cases? Why do they continue to encourage stricter and stronger trademark law protections around the world? There's conflicting evidence as to whether this actually impacts a corporation's bottom line. The kind of knockoffs that I'm talking about, where it's not counterfeiting, they're not trying to pass something off as original. It's open and acknowledged that these are low quality, cheap imitations that are really only going to be purchased by people who can't afford originals. So what is the real impact on the company and on its brand? That impact may not be financial, but I argue in the book that multinational corporations are trying to protect their brand image. In trademark law, that's referred to as brand dilution. They don't want brand dilution. They don't want that brand image to be diluted in the marketplace. But from a more critical and anthropological perspective, I argue that they're actually trying to protect their brands from brand pollution, which is that they don't want their brand names associated with lower class and racialized and marginalized people who live in parts of the world um, often, that these companies don't want their brands associated with, and for me as an anthropologist, there's something almost a bit troubling about that. That fashion, as an industry, really driven by a handful of multinational corporations, would would, would pursue that kind of exclusivity along racial and class and geographical lines.
1: Fashion, like entertainment, is a global industry. People in Guatemala see what's fashionable in the broader world. They see it on TV, in movies, everywhere. But without knockoffs, huge swaths of the world, places like Guatemala that actually house the factories where the originals are made, are told, you don't get to have this.
0: You can make our clothes, you just can't wear them. So that's the other part of this, right? Is that certain groups of people are designated and almost designated legally as laboring populations while other populations are designated as rightful consumers. For me, that mirrors a divide as well between creators and copycats. So we have laboring copycats on the one hand, and then we have creatively-minded consumers on the other hand.
1: So who is the creator and who is the copycat? If you look at the actual labor of creating designs and making clothing, it's not always an easy question to answer.
0: World-renowned fashion designers openly admit that if not for the designs of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, I would not be where I am today, right? Openly acknowledging that fashion as a global industry, the world of haute couture, is premised on borrowing and sharing and taking other people's ideas and running with them. And so to then deny that process to whole swaths of the world population, that doesn't really make sense to me as a cultural anthropologist. trying to understand sort of the fundamentals of, of human culture and creativity.
1: Let's step back and look at the big picture of what we're talking about here. What does it mean to create? What does it mean to copy? Is there really that big of a difference?
0: I think that we see as anthropologists that a primary way that we develop culture is through copying. We don't really have another way of doing things as humans. We're constantly copying from one another. We're copying what we see in the world. But we're also transforming those things. We also are creative in moments of pursuing our identities, pursuing our work, um, pursuing our ways of interacting with other people so i like to think that in copying but also being creative as a way of developing knockoff fashions maya people in guatemala are not doing something different than what we do in our everyday lives to develop our way of life to develop our relationship to goods and materials and to one another so i think Copying is just as fundamental to being human as creativity is, Uh, but it certainly hasn't been celebrated as much as the creative aspects of what we do as people. But we're really doing ourselves a disservice if we don't understand copying, borrowing, imitation, appropriation, as very important parts of the ways that we grow and develop as individuals and also as societies, that's just a really fundamental part of how we learn and how we do.
1: Many thanks to Kedron Thomas for joining Hold That Thought. Her book on this topic is Regulating Style, Intellectual Property Law and the Business of Fashion in Guatemala. Check it out. For many more ideas to explore from arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis, you can find us at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Thank you for listening.